it was, gosh, it was years ago, I uh, read an article, and it was, uh, it was about a race, and it was the strangest race I have ever read about. And uh, this race was strange for a number of reasons. Uh, it was a bike race, by the way, and so I've got my bike here, or Tracy McMurray's bike, and uh, it was a bike race, and it was strange because the race, first of all, was 20 yards long. I mean, who does a bike race 20 yards long? And the second thing that made this uh, race so unusual was it wasn't the first who crossed the line who won. It was the last. They call them slow bike races. Has anyone ever done one? Uh, they call slow bike races. Kind of, They do a lot of them with fundraisers and things because it's hilarious to watch you know, it's not how we learn to ride a bike, right? Here, ride as slow as you can, honey. No, you've you got to get speed to go. In a race, you and I know, it's the first who crosses the line that wins. Now, why do I start here? Because I think in our text today, we're going to see Jesus do something. In the same way that the, the slow bike race movement, so to speak, a, a slow bike race takes everything you and I learned about riding a bike and racing, and it just turns it on its head, just, just flips it over. Finish last, go as slow as you can. No one ever, did anyone ever jump on their bike and say, hey, hey, last one to the pool wins? You know, no. Jesus, in our text today, is going to take, if I can switch the metaphor just a bit, he's going to take the race of life. And everything you and I have been taught about it, you know, it's the one who has the most at the end that wins. It's your position, it's your power, it's your status. He's going to take the race of life and the rules of the race of life, and he just flips it on its head. And y'all, he does it in language that is shocking. It shook them. Uh, the original readers, even when they read it, the disciples, when they heard it, and I trust in the providence of God that those words will shake us, quite honestly. Maybe out of our complacency, maybe out of denial, out of whatever is keeping us from understanding. The race of life is not what we have been taught. Now, last week, Rob Sweet uh, took us from chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, and uh, I really want to encourage you to go and, and watch uh, that message. When I was in seminary, it's over 25 years ago, um, Dr. Howard Hendricks said this. I didn't hear him say this, but someone had told me he said it then. He said, at that time, he said, those who lead the church in the next generation will be those who can teach doctrine winsomely. Now, that was 25 years ago. I think that statement was true then, and I think it's more true today. And I'm saying this because this is my, you know, my opinion, but Rob Sweet is one of those leaders who can teach doctrine winsomely, such that the doctrines of God, they, they, they are attractive <laughs> And winsome to us. And so I want you to, to watch that. He'll take us from the top of the mountain uh, as we came off the Mount of Transfiguration to the bottom of Mount Hermon. He'll walk us through that 
incident where he, uh, Jesus healed the, demon, the, the boy who the disciples couldn't. And in the process, strengthened the father's faith. So take a look at that. We're going to pick up the story now in verse 30. And we're going to go all the way to verse 50. So open your Bibles if you've got them, or if you've got them open, go to chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Um, it's not an easy passage to follow. So, so I'm just going to warn you now, this, and I'll move around a little differently in it, but it, it's, it's a little difficult because he strings together these statements, and, and they, they don't actually flow at times, and why did he introduce that? And what you'll see is there's certain words that keep him moving in the name of, and the, oh, by the way, I need to talk about this name, and there was a child. I need to talk about this child, and then there was, and he just moves through in this way. So what can help us is if we put all of this under a category, and if I could offer this... Think of, think of everything within these guardrails. Jesus is redefining the race of life. This is where we're going to go. Jesus is redefining the race of life. We'll take it a section at a time. In this first section, I want to take verses 30 to 32. God's word to you and to me this Lord's day. Starting verse 30, it says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. I'm going to call this first, these first two verses, let's label it in this way, seeing the hand of God. Now here's, I'm going to unpack it, seeing the hand of God. Why would I say that? You know, there's three times when Jesus explicitly, plainly, in their face says, we're going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, I'll be buried and I will rise in three days. He does it three times explicitly to them. This is time number two. The first time was chapter 8, verse 31, after Peter's confession. You are the Christ. And he said, and we're going to Jerusalem. And Kill me, raise the dead. This is the second time. And the second time, what, I, what, what we note in this one is that he adds this word delivered. Delivered into the hands of men. Uh, the word can be translated, uh, it can be translated betrayed. And so some see it as, okay, this is a hint that uh, Judas is going to betray. And it, it can be that. But, but I think it is something else. Um, it's a Greek word, paradidomai, and, and it means to, to hand over, to, to, to be given over to, uh, to entrust to. And I want to suggest that it's more accurate to see in this word, that Jesus is trying to get their eyes from the horizontal to the vertical. To, to begin to understand that what's going to happen in Jerusalem, as awful as it is, and as man-centered as it is, there is something else going on before all or behind all that is taking place. When Luke writes about the events of Passion Week... Jesus is suffering, beating, crucifixion, death, burial. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says this, Jesus was delivered over, paradidomai, same word, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge 
of God. So, so at this point, you see, the disciples, they're looking back at those events and what Jesus has just said about his passion. And we go, well, you know what? It was the crowds who rejected him, yes. It was, I mean, it was the Jewish leaders that wanted him dead, yes. And by golly, it was the Roman soldiers that nailed the nails in his hand and his feet, yes, 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 yes. And it was the sovereign hand of God fulfilling his promise for our good and his glory. He's beginning to try and help them see God's hand behind these things. They didn't understand it at the time, but post, if the cross is here, post-cross, they look back on it, and they find in this, Acts 2.23, their greatest hope and confidence amidst things that look absolutely horrible. And I think it's the same for us. See, until we are able to, to see, even in the Passion Week, y'all, there are terrible things that happen in the world today, awful gruesome, unjust, uh, just horrendous. But there is nothing that comes close to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And if God himself can take that injustice and use it for our good and his glory, then we too can lift our eyes up to see that in life, and this is going to happen, it's happening now, things, are ter- things happen that are bad, we have losses. That's not right! There's injustice. Yes, 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 yes. And there is a sovereign God whose hand is behind all things for his children, for their good, and for his glory. And so even as Jesus begins to redefine the, the race of life, our eyes must be on the hand of God when these hard words come. And so now let's look at how he redefines it. And this is going to be all the way from 33 through 50. We'll take the next section though, verses 33 to 37 if I may. Look at God's word for us. Then where it says they came to Capernaum. This is where they were before. They, they, they were up at Mount Hermon way north. They're coming south to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, northwestern part, Capernaum. This is where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. This is where we were back in earlier parts of Mark. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Literally, what were you arguing about? What were you disputing about on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed, disputed about one another, which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking, taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms... He said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. I got a little distracted there because I heard a voice and it sounded so familiar. And you know what it was now that I know? It was Siri. Someone's, <laughs> Siri was speaking over here. Okay, Dan. Um, who, who is that? I know that voice. My girl. So he's here, I'm going to call this redefining greatness. He's redefining greatness. Uh, New Testament scholar Adolf Schlater, German scholar, he writes this about the early church. At all points in worship, in administration of justice, at meals, in all dealings, there constantly arose the question of who was greater. 
and esteeming honor was due to each one, and it was a task that had to constantly be fulfilled, and it was felt to be very important, end quote. And we know this. When we read our New Testament, especially gospel, you always see the guys arguing about who's greatest, and you wonder, why are they always arguing about this? They're going to argue about it in chapter 10 again, even after Jesus redefines it. Because this was the culture they were in. This, is, this was the life, this is the melu in which they, the air they breathed was, who's here, who's here, how much do you have, how are you going to finish, we need to be first, I want to be best, we want the place of rulership. See, they, they live in that. And I think we do too. Let's, we don't have to unpack this too much, do we, that many of us, we, we grow up and I think we live in the culture that says the nice guys finish last, you know. It's the one who has the most at the end. Uh, let's find the position that is above you. I'd love, I want to be an authority. I want power. All of those things. Jesus flips the notion on its head, though. You see, when, we, when, when, when the race of life in this world says it's, this is the rules of the race of life, Jesus says, uh, no. Uh, greatness is being above everyone. Jesus says, uh, no, it's being underneath everyone. So he flips the rules of the race, of life. And then he gives an illustration, and that's where we're going to stay for a moment because he illustrates it with a child. Lisa and I were in Louisville just this week, and we were at a, having breakfast one morning. And uh, at our breakfast spot, there was a table nearby, and there was a baby there. And uh, I noticed this. Lisa was, was her back, but there was a baby there, and, and I noticed that their server was just cooing and eyeing over this baby, you know, and the, the little deal. And, and next thing I look up, and the manager has come over to just adore this baby. And next thing I know, another server has come to that one table. It's about two tables over from us. They're just all over this baby. And within five minutes, the server had the baby on her hip and was walking around doing work with the baby on her hip and brought the baby to Lisa and I. Look at the baby, you know, and everything else. And I thought, you know, this is, this, this is our culture. Let me kind of, you know, I hate to offend anyone in a way, but we often need it. We're child-centered. We are. Let's just, you know, this, our, our, our world, that's what was going on there. This is how we live. Babies are everything. They just, oh my gosh, you know, the only thing that will get more hits on YouTube than a baby is a cat, maybe, right? So it's doing something <laughs> stupid. Otherwise, it's a cute baby. In Jesus' day, they didn't view babies like that. They just didn't. Now, did they love their babies? They love their kids? Absolutely. But what Jesus is illustrating here is not the adorableness of a child, but the leastness of a child. See, he goes and he grabs the one in that culture who was on the bottom rung of the social strata. And he grabs a child because a child can't give you anything back. A child just needs, needs, <laughs> gimme, gimme, gimme. And a child can't raise your status. A child can't return to you what you've done for them. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be, if you want to be great, it's not about being above everyone. It's going, no, you got to take a child. You got to take the least. Use that phrase. Take the least in your arms and care for them. That is greatness in Jesus's eyes. It's moving to the back of the line. It's not about being first, but being last. And in fact, stepping back and then, here, you get in front. And here, you get in front. And here, let me do this for you. And you all, when we think about a life that matters, we know this intuitively. It's in our gut. I've never been a part of, uh, of, a, of a memorial service or a funeral where people spoke about the deceased and the words that they said 
were not words that reflected how that person served others, met others' needs, made sacrifices, didn't live life for them. You know, we never, it's, that's what we're honoring. And at your funeral and mine, it won't be the people that we stood in front of and we kept behind us that say kind things about us. We know this. When it all boils down to it, it's who we served and how we gave. We call it here at Fellowship Giving Our Lives Away. Okay, he's redefined greatness. Now he's going to redefine the kingdom. So here's the second section on this. Redefine the kingdom. Look at verses 38 to 41. John said to him, by the way, this is the first time John has spoken up, and it's the only time he'll speak in this gospel. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Only time John spoke up, and it's humorous to me at least when I read this, because you got to keep in mind that, that, that what's going on here is Jesus knew they were arguing about greatness. They couldn't shut up on the road, but when he sat down and looked them in the eye, what are you arguing about? They couldn't speak. Last time someone spoke, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And I got a, I got a feeling that John had to think this was a good thing. I mean, why else would he bring it up? I, you know, that John had to be going, oh, this is tough, but at least we did one thing right. Hey, by the way, there was a guy he's casting out demons. We told him not to because he wasn't with us. And Jesus goes, eh. You know? <laughs> Oh my gosh, John's like, okay, shut up, I'm saying, and he doesn't. But he thinks it's a good thing. Jesus says, no, that's, that's not a good thing. Don't hinder him. I'm going to draw a picture for you of uh, Jesus' view of the world. It's pretty simple. Uh, Jesus says here, and he says in another place, he says, let me, let me, let me tell you, this is, this is what the world is like. And it's only like this. There are those who are for me. And then there are those who are against me. This is, this is who's in this room right now. That's it. This is who's out there. This is, this is the world. You're either for or against. And, and by the way, this line right here, if, if, I, if I drew it more accurately, I might draw it like this. There's a... It's almost like there's a gap right here. Because what Jesus is saying in, in uh, uh, let's just say, military terms, is there's no neutral country. You know, you're, either, you're either for or against. You can't, you can't say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not either. Well, no, you can't go in there. Or if, they, if it was a political term, you'd say, well, you know, I'm undecided. I, I, don't, I'm un, I don't know yet. Uh, until you decide, you're over here, according to Jesus. And what, what's interesting to me on this is, is that, you know, in Jesus's terms, not only can you not go in here, you know, you might say, well, I'm, I'm sort of against, I'm not quite for him, I'm sort of against him, you know, I'm close to the line. Well, do you know how, do you know how wide this gap is between the fours and the against? It's infinite. 
And so you can't, you know, how close, are, are you better off being there or here? Doesn't matter. You, know, you, can't, you can be right on the edge of this. This is an infinite gap between for and against. And Jesus is saying that though they're, they're, if you're for me and this person clearly was exercising demons, and by the way, don't forget, they couldn't exercise that demon just a few days ago, but this guy was. He's doing it in Jesus' name, which gives an indication you know, he was relying upon Jesus, which is, which is how the, the demon would be exercised. Jesus says, for me, you got to let him go. They were very, you know, they still had this Jewish mindset, and the Jews fell into this trap of exclusivity. It's just us. It's just for us. And no, the, the, the promise of, to Abraham was for the world. Jesus is getting ready to leave them. So intentional that he says he didn't want anybody to know that he's traveling. Why does he not want the crowds around? Because he's got to talk to his guys. He's got to teach them. He's leaving in a few short you know, weeks, so to speak. He's gone and he needs them to know certain things. And one of them is, it's not about you guys. This is not just for you. You understand? This is for the world, through you to the world. And when someone else is doing something for the kingdom, then encourage them on. Pray for them is what you know, I'd, we'd say to each other. Pray for them. This is a great reminder uh, for me. Of course, I'm not talking about doctrinal differences at the essentials. No, we're not going to lock arms with others who, have, who hold different doctrines at the essentials. But listen, there's way more in common that we have with so many churches in the community and around the world that we can cheer on. But I've struggled in this way, and no one else may get this, you know. But for me, I remember when I was in college... Uh, I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. I've said this before. It's called Crew Now. But, you know, when I was a student in college, it's just a, I mean, a guy thing. I don't know. But, like, when I'm a part of something, it's like I want it to be the best. And so I wanted, I was kind of like, man, we got to beat university. Come on, we can get more people than them or navigators. I mean, look, look, look at those guys. RUF, come on, let's, let's, let's you know, it's that way. Now, you put that in a church context. Do, do I ever get competitive as a, as a church, as a, as a leader? Heck, yeah, you know. Do I ever uh, feel like when some other church is going well and doing great and they're doing things that I wish we were doing and we could, and I go, oh, why, why aren't we doing Yes, I feel that. Well, you don't know me well enough. You don't think I don't feel that. I do. It's like, darn, let's, let's go, you know. We ought to be doing that. Or people, they're at fellowship and now they're at another church and they've left. And do I get angry about that? Yeah, of course. I, you know, or jealous and all of that crap, you know, that just goes on. It's, it's certainly there. And there's just... There, there's no reason for this, and I needed to be reminded of that, even if it's just for me. That we can oh, cheer on all who are at work for the kingdom of God, pray for, exhort, and encourage. One final thought on this. I want you to notice that the kingdom, of, the kingdom work Jesus commends and rewards and he remembers, it's pretty, pretty uh, kind of blasé, if I can say it that way. Give a Christian a drink of cold water and that reward will not be forgotten. Now, in the, original, in the original audience, I want you to know, no one was given Christians drinks of water, literally. No one was given helping you know, Christians in this day. They were being persecuted. But it is a simple act to give a cup of water to someone, literally and figuratively. Um, following Jesus, I just want to say it's not about the extraordinary uh, I hate to pop everyone's bubble, but, you know, most of us are going to live pretty mundane, ordinary lives, <laughs> and that's okay. that's okay. What's extraordinary is do we give cups of water throughout our whole life? Acts of kindness 
encouragement that no one ever sees, you see, but Jesus sees. When people think of Dallas Seminary, they, they often think of the big names, John Walvoord and Chuck Swindoll and Howard Hendricks. But when I think of my time at Dallas and who had a tremendous influence on me, I think of Reg Grant. And no one knows who Reg Grant is. But he was a pastor, he was a professor of pastoral ministries. He taught a creative writing class I took that I really loved. And then he taught a preaching class. And I didn't go to seminary to be a preacher. You guys know this. I took one elective preaching class. And I'll never forget, though, he wrote on the bottom of one of my manuscripts of a message that I gave. He put these words, I could listen to this on a regular basis. I wasn't even, I had no idea. A cup of water, a word of encouragement. How in the world do you know where that goes with people around you? I want to encourage you. Give a cup of water. So he redefined greatness as serving. He redefined the kingdom. It's bigger than you. (laughs) Y'all, it's bigger than Fellowship Bible Church. It's God at work to bring people to himself. Now he's going to redefine our attitude towards sin. And this is where it gets rather shocking and difficult and troublesome. Verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die And the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And let's stand together and let me give the benediction and we'll be done. Just kidding. I said that last night and literally 10 people got up. It was so crazy. I said that and they were ready. I don't know something going on last night. They were ready to go. And uh, I had to call them back. I said, no, 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 we're going to talk about it. Um, Let me start here, verses 49 and 50, because I won't unpack this. I, I don't have time to. Do you know there's at least 15 interpretations of those two verses? It's crazy. You know what? We don't know what it means. We don't know what it means exactly. We, we, can, we can gather that he's talking about salt, and we know we're the salt of the world, and salt's a preservative. Um, and he is in fire in there, but are we to be the preservative in the world? Absolutely. And by the way, when you're salt, you notice how it ends with, and you be at peace with one another. What were they doing at the beginning of this passage? What were they doing at the beginning with each other? They were arguing. So you be salt, the gospel, in your life, and you won't argue with one another. Okay, hold that. Let's grab this more difficult part, even if it is, you know, even though that is uh, pretty difficult to, to, to nail down. Some of the most graphic words in the New Testament, of course. It's pretty gory. It's ugly. It's, you know, when you read this, don't you cringe a little? You kind of go, oh, my word. <laughs> cut it off, cut it off, cut it off. Hell, unquenchable fire, worm does not. 
Oh my goodness, you know. And, and it, it's almost like you feel it in your body and you, you step back from that. Well, this is, that's what the language is meant to do. If you felt that, it's like good. That's why he said it the way that he did. Now, the first warning is about hindering others. Like, are you going to keep others from following me? And there's talking about new Christians here, we think. And so if you're a person who, who does anything that, that hinders, that, that, that keeps a young Christian from the right path, I'm going to tell you something, this is not good. This is really not good at all. In fact, Jesus says, better to have a millstone around your neck thrown into a lake. I've got a picture of a millstone up here so that you know it's not a small stone. It's a big old stone. Take several guys to load that thing onto the other, top of the other stone. That thing turns around on top of another stone. And the, the mill is ground up and then falls out. Can you imagine, uh, you, know, you know, having that tied to your neck, thrown in a lake? Let me, let me tell you where you're going to end up. You're going to end up on the bottom and you will never come back up. That, that's what he says. If you're going to be someone who harms others who are trying to follow me, better, better that you're dead, the bottom of the lake, than to be doing that. That's, that's pretty sobering. And now he goes to this. Now, that's what you could do to others. Let me address what you do to yourself. Let me address what you do in your own life that hinders you from following me fully. And, of course, we read this and we sit there and go, man, do I take that literally? And then you'll hear, you know, Michael or Rob or us teaching. We talk about we do believe this, our hermeneutic, our biblical principle uh, interpretive principle, study of the Bible principle, is a, is a historical, literal view, you know, and you go, oh my gosh, these guys take it literally, and y'all, we really do. And so I did bring something for application on this, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, if we're going to take this literally, people, then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna chop today, right? No. Now, here's what you got to do when we read something like this. And, and this is Bible Study Methods 101. Number one, historical Literal interpretation. Literal means what's literal is literal, but it's also a literary book. The Bible is a literary book. And you know that what happens in literature and literary principles, people use metaphors and similes. And they also say things like this. I'm going to take this pulpit. Oh my gosh, it weighs a ton. Now are you looking at me going, 2,000 pounds? And he lifted that. It's amazing. You're strong as an ox, Lloyd. Are you thinking that I've, I'm an ox? No. What am I talking? I'm talking in hyperbole. And so let's use our common sense. And we read our Bibles. And Jesus is speaking in hyperbole very clearly in this passage. And then we take this other principle. It's called the analogy of faith or the analogy of Scripture. Developed, the, the reformers use this. And the principle, it's, I'm going to simplify it, but the analogy of Scripture is Scripture interprets Scripture. So that what's spoken of in Scripture here will not contradict what's spoken of in Scripture here, but will interpret, interpret it and align with it. Another way to say it is, does my interpretation of any part of the Bible... Is it out of line with any part of the Bible? Well, I got, I got the wrong interpretation because it's one story, one author, one God. The Old Testament forbid maiming, cutting things off. You know, no, 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 that's not, that's not why God gave us our bodies. So certainly that's forbidden. New Testament, do we ever see Paul, any of the writers say, uh, you know, here's how you deal with the flesh, or here's how you deal with a recurring sin. Cut your hand off. No. Did it ever happen? Yes. Origen castrated himself. 
tremendous struggle with lust, he castrated himself. And I assure you, it didn't solve his problem with lust. We already read in chapter 7 where the problem is. The problem of sin is not out there. Where is it? Say it out loud. Where's the problem of sin? It's in our hearts, you see. This is the problem. You can cut every limb off and you're still going to struggle with pride or lust or whatever it may be. What Jesus is saying here, if I can borrow some phrases, I think that could help us. It would be this. There is no sin worth going to hell for. It's just not. He says the value of eternal life is worth any, any earthly sacrifice you make. Take sin seriously. Deal with it radically, ruthlessly, decisively. If I could, again, give us a picture of a sense of this. It's Jesus saying, or, or, or it's, I've never met someone, and this I know touches close to home, but I've never met anyone who said to me, I was at the doctor, et cetera, just for a checkup, but you know what? They found a tumor, and it's malignant. But I'm not going to do anything about it. I mean, we're just going to let it ride. No! No! No, if you have a, a tumor, you, you can't wait to get it out of your body and removed, you see. And that's what Jesus is saying about sin, it's a cancer that is eating at your heart. Don't, don't, don't mess around with it. Deal with it decisively, ruthlessly, consistently, strongly. A word about hell. Of course, we're not going to unpack all this, but he mentions uh, hell. It's literally translated Gehenna, which, is, which literally means Valley of Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom. So Jesus is saying, you're going to go to the Valley of Hinnom. Well, what is that? It's a, it's a real place. On the southwest side of Jerusalem, there's a valley. And in the Old Testament, they sacrificed babies. And the Jews, God's people, sacrificed babies in there. Josiah put an end to it. And he turned it into a dump. Because he wanted it totally desecrated. They wouldn't even be doing anything there. And so it was a dump in Jesus' day. We've seen dumps. We've been to dumps, you know, pre-EPA and all this stuff. You know, they had to burn the stuff out there in those giant piles and ditches. And so that ditch literally was filled with trash. And by the way, in this day, they didn't recycle. So it was everything, including criminals, dead criminals, and dead animals. And they would burn it so it wouldn't fill up. And so that pit was like a fermenting furnace. And you know what was in there, too? There were these worms in there maggots. You know what? They were eating that stuff all the time. It's just gross. But Jesus knows as he uses this that they will get in their heads. Oh my gosh, that is not a place you want to be. And so he describes it with these terms. And indeed, uh, you know, you know, if you, if you, ask, you know, is there a literal hell? Absolutely, I believe the Bible teaches there is, and it is an unquenchable fire, which means it's an eternal torment, separated from God, but not separated so much so that God's wrath is not upon those who reject Christ. You don't want to be there. Okay, close your Bibles. We'll wrap up. There's so much in here to apply that I'm going to do it a little different, if I may. And I, I, I just want to speak over you if I, if I can do it this way. Would you close your eyes and let me offer some thoughts about the application and pondering this. Just close your eyes. Uh, several years ago, uh, my son Darren and I were hunting. He was probably eight years old and 
uh, we were hunting in Clarksville, and it was in October, and um, there was a cold front coming through really fast after a warm spell. And the squall line was unbelievable. It was moving so fast. Storms, tornadoes spawned, all that. But we were already in Clarksville, and I thought, you know what, this is a great, this is a great evening to deer hunt, because when this thing blows through, the backside of it's going to be fabulous toward evening. So I take him out, we're up in a tree, and y'all, it was hurricane, gale force winds. It was downpouring, and there was thunder and lightning. And at the time, we were giggling about it and counting, you know, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. Okay, that one's 10 miles away. Okay, that one's seven miles away. Hmm. And then, I mean, out of nowhere, kaboom! The woods we were in shook, lightning thunder immediately and I thought to myself "Mm -mm." I we literally flew out of that tree hit the ground got out of the woods and at that point I'm thinking to myself oh my gosh this is life and death Jesus in this passage says if you're going to follow me it is about life and death it is not a game And if he were speaking to us, I think he may say something along these lines. This is about life and death. It really matters. Are you seeking greatness? Nothing wrong with that, but greatness is serving others and serving the least. Are you seeking to finish first? Nothing wrong with that, but it is only by finishing last that you'll finish first. Are you jealous for my kingdom? Fantastic. Pray for and encourage all who are working for the kingdom. Do you want to do great things for the kingdom? Wonderful. The greatest thing is the cup of water no one will see you give. Are you serious about your walk with me? It will be reflected in your attitude towards sin. You need never cut off a hand, a foot, or gouge out an eye because I gave both hands, both feet, both eyes. I gave my whole body in dying for your sin that you would not have to. I did so gladly. Because of my love for you and to fulfill the Father's promise to bring himself, to bring you to himself. Following me is difficult. It's serious. And it's so hard, it's impossible. 
That's why I've given you my spirit, that as you trust me, he is at work on your behalf. You can rest in me, for I will bring to completion the work I have begun in you. Amen. Let's stand together, and uh, I will read a brief benediction. A wonderful promise, I think, relates to the passage. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the wonderful promise. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it as we trust Him. Y'all, the race rules have changed. It's not the first to cross the line. It's not the fastest. Jesus has turned those rules upside down. God bless.